Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community of everyday philanthropists raising the questions and raising the funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available at www.utahwomensgivingcircle.com. And Utah State University Center for Women and Gender, providing a professional and social climate to enhance opportunities through learning, discovery, and engagement. Information available at cwg.usu.edu. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Record numbers of women are running for office and engaged in the public process and report that they are going to vote in record numbers. We're going to ask on the program today why, and is this a temporary or lasting trend? What will all this mean this year and going forward? As a part of the UPR original series, Utah Women 2020, we're discussing these issues on the program today. Our guests include uh, Pat Jones, former state uh, senator and representative and current CEO of the Women's Leadership Institute. Uh, Pat Jones, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Nice to be with you. I understand we can only have you on uh, for uh, about the first segment, so appreciate you uh, giving your time to us uh, today. Um, we also welcome in Aaron Jemison, Director of Public Policy at YWCA Utah. Aaron Jemison, welcome. Thank you. And uh, we'll also be talking with Debbie Wallace, Director of the Center for American Women in Politics. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let me start with you, uh, Debbie Walsh. Uh, first, brief uh, explanation of what Center for American Women in Politics is. So the Center for American Women in Politics is kind of a think tank on women's political participation in American politics. We've been around for almost 50 years, and we have been studying the trends and the numbers of women as candidates, as office holders, and as voters. Um, we also do some deep dive research into questions of impact of women in office and women's roots to office, how they get there, um, how women get there, and how they may do it differently than their male counterparts. And we also make sure that we make that research accessible to the general public and to the activist community that's working to change the face of power around the country. And we run our own um, action projects. Uh, so whether it's our new leadership program, which is a program to demystify politics for college women across the country, or our nonpartisan campaign training programs ready to run, which I'm happy to say um, we work closely with the Real Women Run project that comes out of the Y and work with Aaron um, on, on their project in Utah um, and as a partner in our Ready to Run program. So I wanted to, uh, I'm looking at charts, we're hearing anecdotally anyway, record numbers of women running. Uh, can you confirm that? And is it, is it across all offices? Yeah. So we have seen record numbers of women running for at every level, at the state legislative level, um, governors, and also Congress, House, and Senate. And just to give you a sense of this, when the center was founded uh, back in 1971, the question was not, you know, tell us all about what you're doing and, and your plans for the future, it was there's no subject there. After you count the 340 women who serve in state legislatures, which is what the number was in those days, um, what will you do? And now we find ourselves at the heart of really the most reported on story in this election cycle, which is this increase in women's participation. And to give you a sense of it, you know, we have broken records, but we're not just breaking them by one or two, we're blowing through them. So, for instance, for the U.S. Senate, we have 22 women who are running for the Senate this time, 
18 of them, um, 18 is the, is the previous record. At the House level, there were 235 women who are going to be on the ballot uh, come next week. Um, the previous record was 167. Um, we're seeing the same kind of records being broken at the gubernatorial level. We have 16 women who made it through their nominations, made it through the primaries um, versus the 10, which was the previous record. But to give you a sense, we had about 30 women was the previous record for women running for governor who filed. Um, and this year we had over 60 women who actually filed to run for governor this year. So it's been an extraordinary time to be watching women as candidates. Uh, that uh, Those are some eye-popping numbers. Uh, I want to turn next to Erin Jemison. Are we seeing similar energy in Utah? You know, people come to you, participate in the Real Women Run program or or talk to you, um, is is there an increase in women running in Utah? Yes, for sure. We have seen um, record numbers at our events really since the 2016 election. That's really when we started to see that uptick. Uh, it evened out a little bit um, in the past year or so, but we're still seeing higher numbers than we did before that election. And um, especially at the state level uh, offices, we're seeing more women filing and making it through the primary here in Utah and just a general increased uh, enthusiasm and excitement to get involved. And, and I always talk about the fact that we had some really close races in 2016 locally as well. It's not just about the national picture. And so uh, some, some women who lost by as few as five votes. And so um, that particular candidate is running again this year. And I think we've really seen a recognition that every vote really does count and, and that um, anyone really can jump in the race and make a difference and, and that we need all of our communities to be engaging in in the political system. Pat Jones, um, uh, first of all, before I jump into a few questions with you, um, uh, tell us briefly what the Women's Leadership Institute is. The Women's Leadership Institute is a 501c3 housed at the Salt Lake Chamber, so we're business-led. We consider men as allies and advocates of women. Uh, So we're only four years old, and part of our mission is to elevate the stature of women in business and in politics. And it's been a great joy. And, of course, I know Debbie's group very well, having been uh, in so many uh, legislative meetings nationally and have admired what they're doing. And Erin's group is doing great things, too, with Real Women Run. The Women's Leadership Institute has sponsored our political development series for the last four years. We're in our fourth cohort right now. Uh, We have seen the numbers jump dramatically in the last couple of years, women that are wanting to train in-depth training in in politics, uh, fundraising and uh, messaging and speaking and social media and so forth. It has been a joy to watch the women uh, mingle together. Sometimes if they win uh, or if they don't win, they help each other on their campaigns. It's nonpartisan. So it's really a pleasure to see women who are really interested in taking the responsibility to take charge. Hmm. Uh, I really feel like there's a women's renaissance going on right now. And uh, I think part of it is this political interest where we are feeling like no longer do we want other people who don't think like us uh, to make all of the political decisions for us. 
alert our other guests. I'll, I'll concentrate a few questions here uh, to Pat Jones since she has to leave in about five minutes, but uh, we'll we'll uh, visit some of these themes with you as well. Uh, so, Pat Jones, I was very interested. Uh, I pulled up a, a piece you wrote for the Desert News three years ago. It was 2015. Some of these issues resonate. I'm going to ask you if, if it's still the case three years on. Uh, so you said in that piece that when you talked, at least in the past, to women, encouraging them to run for office, you had as well, you know, of course, uh, being in the legislature and then in the Senate, um, comments of some of them at least were too nasty, too mean, too confrontive, too intrusive, uh, talking about the political process. Are you finding the same comments? Well, I, I think there are many people that feel that way, and that is one reason women don't run. However, what I like to talk about is the, the personal benefits of running for office. Um, there are so many, and you know, even learning the system and knowing where to go when you have sick to love, loved ones, for instance, you know what agencies are out there. There's so many positive things. It's the best leadership training that anyone can ever go through is to run for office. Mm. Uh, so we need to start talking about the benefits that, that people derive from it. You know, it's, it, as one of our representatives said, you know, women would stand in front of a, a moving train for our kids, and yet we won't run for office and can really change, and, you know, things to make it better for our kids. You know, I can tell you so many examples when I was serving, especially in the Senate, where I was the only woman on a committee, and they were discussing things like health care, gun violence, gun control, uh, health care, all of these things, environmental issues. And I felt like I was a single voice, but I was standing up for, for women everywhere on some of these issues. And it's just so important to have a balanced set of eyes and thinking when we're making these really heavy decisions on public policy. What do you think, uh, Pat Jones, is motivating increased numbers of women uh, to run? Is it that they want a seat at that table to talk about the issues that concern them? You know, I, I had it explained once, just recently, that it's almost like being in kindergarten where you're seeing these little boys fighting each other. And it's like the, the grown-up little girls have to go in there and say, come on, let's get over it. Let's, let's go do something constructive. And it's that same kind of sense that I'm sensing from women that really feel like we need to get in there and, and take the take charge and and have their voice heard and really make some positive change and getting over kind of that that fighting and let's work together and make some positive change going forward. Uh, in the past, at least, I think it's been gender socialization. Uh, girls have not been encouraged to think about this. Do you think that's changing? And I guess a uh, follow-up question, how how can we change that, if that's true? I think that is true. The culturization, women tend to not want to go in and bloody others' noses. Uh, but I think women are getting to that point now <laughs> where uh, we, we really do feel this re sense of responsibility that we do have. Uh, where we need to have our voices heard. I think we need to work with men in order to accomplish this. Um, I've always uh, incorporated men, embraced, uh, you know, gender diversity, but also gender balance in, in whether it's business or in politics. Uh, but we really need to help people understand the value of gender diversity in politics because there is, we think differently than men do. And uh, I think we we have different ways of, discussion, different ways of working with other people that I think are beneficial to our political system.
Just a couple more questions, Pat Jones. I know we'd have to let you go, and then I'll, I'll address uh, many of these issues to our other guests as well. Um, what's, what will the benefit be? What has it been? Uh, and going forward, uh, to have more women uh, at that table. Well, I'll give you just one example. When I, I was on the law enforcement committee when I was in the House, I was the only woman on that committee, and all of the gun bills went through that committee. And it was just kind of rubber stamped as it went through a lot of these bills. And uh, the big discussion was whether universities should be forced to allow concealed weapons on campus, if you remember that. Um, Mm -hmm. And I kept asking questions, and no one had asked questions, like how many concealed weapons permits are revoked every year? That question had never been asked before. And it was just a different way of asking a question, a different way of thinking. And, you know, come to find out, there are hundreds that are. And so uh, I think we need that kind of new thinking, different thinking, when we're making public policy. I mean, I could name so many different examples that I went through and I experienced uh, as a, oftentimes the only woman on committees, whether it's the HPV virus vaccine uh, you know, whether it's public education funding, whether it's, you know, national monuments, environmental issues, air quality, that I see women asking different questions. They're asking them more thoughtfully. And, of course, these are generalization. There's some great men, too, uh, in, in public office. But I can tell you we are lacking women's voices to balance that out. Um, uh, finally, uh, for you, Pat Jones, um, do you think this is a, a blip, or do you think this is a start of a, uh, of a trend uh, that more women are going to get involved at a steady rate going forward? It's not a blip, because I see a lot of younger women that are very interested in this, and as we see more women run and win, they will provide that modeling that uh, other women need to see before they're actually willing to throw their hat in the ring. And I think that our cities and our counties and our states and our nation will see the benefits of having more women involved in the discussion in in making public policies. So I think it will benefit all of us when this happens. And uh, I think that it will, this is not the end, this is just the beginning. Uh, well, I know we have to get you, let you go. Um, Pat Jones, former uh, Utah legislator and uh, current CEO of Women's Leadership Institute. Thank you so much for taking some time to be with us. Thank you. Bye-bye. And we continue with uh, Debbie Walsh, Director of Center for American Women in Politics, and Aaron Jemison, Director of Public Policy at YWCA Utah. I want to give uh, several issues there that I d- d- discussed with Pat Jones. I want to continue more in depth. Maybe just open-ended, uh, Debbie Welsh, first of all, anything uh, you know, top of mind in that discussion with Pat Jones that you want to comment on, first of all? Well, I, there's a lot there. That, that, that was terrific, and I loved hearing from Pat about, about her experience. Um, and it's always, it's always important to hear from women who've actually served um, and who have experienced firsthand the difference that women can make. And I think that's an important point. You know, 
we, we care about these numbers for all kinds of reasons. We care about it for fairness. We care about it because we're wasting talent and creativity by not by you know, sidelining 50% of the population. But I think hearing the stories of how women bring a different perspective to these institutions, whether it's local government, state government, or the federal level, um, is critical. Uh, you know, it's, it is that women... Everybody brings their personal life experience to the making of policy and politics when they serve. Um, but to only have the experience of white men um, is is just makes the conversation not as full as it could be. It means that policy isn't as reflective of the needs of the population as a whole. And I think, as Pat was outlining, it's not that the men don't don't support a lot of these issues, but it often takes a woman being in the room to notice something, to see something differently, and to raise an issue that might not get raised. And then the men go, oh, yeah, I support that. Um, but it takes that woman being in the room. And so I, I think I think it's really critical. Uh, and, and I think what we're seeing this year is... Um, you know, as as Aaron said, we saw an increase in in women's participation in our programs in New Jersey, but also with our partner programs across the country in about 20 states. So states like Utah, Oklahoma, Ohio, we were seeing more women participating in campaign trainings as a result of the 2016 election. And I think women really felt like they needed to have a voice in the political process in a way that I'm not sure they they got in the same way before. Um, I think the 2016 election really showed women how consequential elections can be and that they needed to stop looking to somebody else to be the candidate if they wanted candidates who believed in certain things and sounded like them and looked like them, they needed to step up and be the candidate. Um, we will see if this is a moment or a movement um, as we move forward. We will be watching to see if some of the things that have happened in this election cycle will continue as we look to 2020 and 2022. I hope they do. Aaron Jemison, uh, j- top of mind uh, from the discussion so far before we take a break, then we'll come back and talk about some specific uh, issues here. Uh, what, what's What's been on your mind as we uh, conti- discussions continue here? Yeah, I think a few things. I think first is that um, one of the things that we are doing here in Utah is really encouraging current men who are in elected office and in leadership positions in their community to be, as I mean, Pat mentioned, we need men to be our allies. We've really started engaging those men in hosting events and being the folks who at least provide some kind of welcome and um, encouragement for women in their community. It makes a huge difference when people see a really longtime uh, state senator or representative show up at this event and say, some of the most amazing colleagues in in the House or in the Senate that I work with are women, and we need more of you in our local community. And that's that's big. That makes a big statement to to hear that from folks that people really look up to in their communities and who have served in leadership positions for oftentimes many, many years. So that's one thing that we're seeing. Secondly, I would say um, that just as we're talking about gender and, and um 
this was mentioned a little bit, we also need to look at the fact that women of color, but also men of color, are still not represented in these um, in these positions nearly to the level that they need to be. And that's something that the Center for American Women in Politics does a great job when they're putting out some of that research and data around women. They're also always keeping at top of mind how women of color are faring. And I think that's something we have um, a real lack of representation in Utah, and that's one of the things that we really started to focus on at Real Women Run More is to look at the fact that just as women and men bring different experiences to the leadership uh, and decision-making tables, so do people of color and communities of color in our state, and those communities are growing, and we need to look at the fact that some of the barriers that women have experienced for um, many, many years in Utah to being in leadership are now being experienced by those communities as well. So those are a couple thoughts that came up as I've listened to other folks and I think really speaks to um, looking at different kinds of partners and really reaching across um, those differences to say we are we are better and we make better, more comprehensive, more effective decisions when we're all at the table. Uh, again, I want to I want to address that right now um, while it's fresh on our minds. Uh, women of color, uh, Debbie Welsh. Uh, you know, we're all hearing about the Georgia race for governor. Stacey Abrams. Are there other? What are the numbers? Are, are, have those ticked up as well? Yeah, so women of color are about a third of the House candidates this time around, um, and that's that's a record. And uh, at the Senate level, um, not so much. There is only one woman of color who made it through the election and is running. We also see tremendous diversity um, right now, an uh, unprecedented level of diversity among the women who are gubernatorial candidates. So in addition to three LGBTQ nominees um, for governor, uh, Kate Brown in Oregon, Lupe Valdez in Texas, and Christine Hallquist in Vermont, we're seeing more racial and ethnic diversity in this year's pool of women gubernatorial candidates than ever before. So five of the 16 women nominees are, are women of color, in, including four Democratic nominees who would be the first Democratic women of color ever elected governor in the U.S. Um, you mentioned Stacey Abrams. There's also Michelle Lujan Grisham and Lupe Valdez um, running in New Mexico and Texas. Respectively, they would be the first Democratic Latinas elected governor in the U.S., Paulette Jordan out in um, your way in Idaho, Democrat, um, she is the first Native American woman nominee for governor nationwide. And Audrea Tupola um, is the only Republican woman of color nominee. She's running um, in Hawaii, um, Asian Pacific Islander woman, um, the only Asian Pacific Islander woman on the general election gubernatorial ballot in 2018. So we're seeing um, we're seeing some important diversity among the women who are running this time around. And I will tell you that the growth of women of color as elected officials has been, in some ways particularly looking at 2016, the only good news story out of that election of 2016 um, for women at the federal level. Um, we saw a zero growth in the number of women in the House um, as a result um, of the 2016 election, which was kind of ironic given that it was the year that we had the very first woman running at the top of the ticket um, in, the hist in history. Um, but the place where we did see growth was among women of color. So among the nine new women who were elected, we saw no net gain, but there were nine new women elected. Seven of them were women of color. So 
So there, this has been a place of growth, um, and I think something that we will continue to see. And Erin is absolutely right. When we talk about women bringing different perspectives, it's it's you know we want women, we want diversity among the women who are in office to bring all of that diversity to the making of policy and and to sort of how the institution itself works. Women have an impact on not just the the policy outcomes, but also the process. And uh, we need more voices and a diverse group of voices um, as we move forward in this country. It's, it's what our democracy was really built on. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back more with Debbie Walsh, Director of Center for American Women in Politics, and Aaron Jemison, Director of Public Policy at YWCA Utah. We're talking about record numbers of women running for office not only that, uh, record numbers of women reporting engaged, being engaged in the political process, reporting they're going to vote. Uh, we're asking why. Is this a temporary or lasting trend? What does this mean this year and uh, going forward? Uh, this program is a part of our UPR original series, Utah Women 2020. We'll have more following this break. There has to be a better way to do elections. How about compulsory voting like in Australia? Or we could let children vote. Shouldn't they get a say? We could charge people money to vote. Or maybe Election Day should be a national holiday with parades and parties. And cake. Elections 2.0. Next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRX. Sunday morning at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio's newest show began in the line at a university coffee shop. Standing before me was a historian. Behind me, there was a physicist, and as we waited to order, we solved all of the world's problems. We'd like to create more situations like that. So each week, we're going to introduce you to two scientists working on very different issues. And then we're going to introduce them to each other. That's Undisciplined, Fridays at 2. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Record numbers of women are running for office this year. Record numbers of women engaged in the political process, reporting they're going to vote. We're asking why. Is this a temporary or lasting trend? What does it mean this year? And going forward, this uh, episode of Access Utah is a part of uh, UPR's original series, Utah Women 2020. We uh, were talking with Pat Jones, former state senator and current CEO of Women's Leadership Institute. We continue the discussion with Aaron Jemison, Director of Public Policy at YWCA Utah, and Debbie Walsh, Director of the Center for American Women in Politics. You're welcome to join the conversation. We'd love to get your take on these issues. You can call us to 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com as our email, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, let me uh, pose this uh, first to Erin Jemison. Um, Pat Jones uh, talked about tone that some people, women that she's talked to, are jumping into running for political office. Want to change the tone? Um, she mentioned the word "grown up." Um, is uh, what are you hearing, Erin Jemison? Is is it um, uh, some women are reporting that it's that it was the election of 2016, and uh, of course we had the women's march the day after the inauguration. Uh, um, does Me Too enter into to this? Uh, President Trump, what? Uh, what are some of the reasons that people are reporting to you they're they're running? Yeah, I think so. I think folks were really surprised by um, the results of the election. And, you know, we've heard a lot about 
um, the echo chamber and people kind of living in their bubble and just being completely shocked that their that their friends and family and neighbors had um, voted the way that they had and and as Pat mentioned, I think it encouraged a lot of women to see themselves as um, part of the change that we needed and that if if this was kind of the direction that we were going and if we were um, seeing folks elected who were uh, able to make um, disparaging comments about women or who've been accused of sexual assault or sexual harassment, for example, if those folks were still being elected, then we have real problems and, and maybe it's women stepping up that, that will make the difference. And um, I think generally, yes, women that in that come to our events and who are being trained by Real Women Run are concerned about some of the rhetoric and the tone that they see in campaigns and, and in our public discourse in general. I mean, I think they see real hope for the fact that we don't see that as as um, as a real as much toxicity around those conversations here at the state and local level, and that's where a lot of women are starting. Um, and I think there's a lot of frustration with that national discourse and and hope that we can continue to to do better here in Utah, and that we um, that that more women being part of those conversations and being part of the process will will help add value and and make that 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 discourse more civil in, in many ways. Debbie Walsh, I, I want to uh, ask you about people you're talking to uh, as well. Is it the tone? Is it President Trump? Is it Me Too? Is it something else? What What are uh, women reporting to you? Yeah, you know, I think it's a combination of all of this. Um, you know, I think that the trigger was uh, in large part uh, the election of Donald Trump, because when you look at these numbers of women candidates, by the way, it is overwhelmingly skewed Republican. I mean, sorry, it's overwhelmingly skewed Democrat. We actually may lose Republican women in the House as a result of this election. Um, so this is a phenomenon that is happening on the Democratic side, and I think that initial moment of his election um, really engaged women. Um, we literally saw it the day after um, after he was elected with an uptick in the number of women signing up for our Ready to Run program here in New Jersey. And wow. we normally get about 150 women who participate. Our program is held in March. We start advertising in October. Usually by the end of December of that year, we might have two or three people who've actually paid and registered. Um, we by the end of the calendar year, we had over 100 women who had paid and registered, and we ended up with 270 women who attended that year, and we had to move it to a larger venue, and we ultimately had to close registration out because we just couldn't accommodate them. I think if we had a bigger space, we could have had up to 350 women. That was how intense the response was, and and a lot of this happened before this this interest happened before Me Too started. It happened even before the Women's March um, in January. So I think women were looking for a way to have a voice and to have some power and to have some agency in the political process. And I think what's happened over time, though, is that these women are not running against Donald Trump. These women are running for a whole set of issues that they really care about and that I think voters care about. They're largely, we see all over the country, they're running with health care as the top, one of the top issues that they're running on, access to health care, the guarantee of coverage for folks with pre-existing conditions. 
this is what's driving them, economic issues. You know, they're talking to voters, and this is what voters care about. This is what women voters care about, as well as men who vote. Um, you know, they're worried about the economy. They're worried about making ends meet. They want to make sure that their their families, their kids, they have, have health coverage. And that's what these women are running for, and I think that's important to remember. Um, you know, they're running to have a voice but they're running to accomplish things. And I, I actually really liked what Pat was saying earlier as she goes out to talk to women about why they should think about running is the satisfaction that you can get as an elected official to really make a difference, you know, to, to try to do something to change things for your constituents. And I think, I think elected officials have gotten kind of a bad rap over the years. Um, you know, some of the language um, from this president talking about the swamp in Washington. You know, most people who are in elected office are good people who are trying to do good for their constituents. And you may agree or disagree with the, the, the direction that they want to go, but they're doing it because they think that's a good thing and it's to make things better. Um, and I think, you know, these are public servants. And I think talking about what you can accomplish um, and getting good people to run for office is important. And so that's why I think this year is so critical to see so many women stepping up and saying, I do want to make a difference and I care about a whole set of issues and that's what I'm running for. Aaron Jemison, um, I want to follow up with uh, that last part uh, that Debbie Walsh was saying uh, that really the selling point, I guess, is that you can make a difference, that you won't have a swampy experience, right? The, you, <laughs> the tone, you, you can perhaps change the tone. What are you hearing, that uh, women are hopeful that they, if, if elected, could actually change the tone, change the conversation? Yeah, and I, I completely agree with everything that Debbie just mentioned and Pat earlier as well in terms of um, uh, just campaigning in and of itself is such an eye-opening leadership development experience for so many women. And and as I kind of alluded to before, I think what we hear from a lot of candidates is that as they show up at more city council meetings, as they meet with other folks in these positions that they're hoping to attain someday, as they are on Capitol Hill more and, and talking to people that they hope will be their future colleagues and hearing from their constituents, they're really encouraged to hear that uh, as Debbie just mentioned, most people in those positions are doing it for the right reasons and really care about their communities and are trying to make things better. And I've never heard a, a woman candidate or really any candidate regret running and having that experience, even if sometimes it can be difficult and some of the, the back and forth can, be, um, can get a little bit uh, nasty sometimes in campaigns. Every woman who's ever run in our program tells us that it was the best experience that they've had because they learned so much about their community. They learned so much about what people care about. They realized that they weren't alone, as Debbie was mentioning, in caring about this whole host of issues. And they felt more part of their community and more connected to people that they live around than they ever had before. And I think um, we, we hear so much around the national discourse and I I really hope that the that the women that we're reaching out to and the events that we're hosting are helping people connect more on that local and state level because I just hear over and over again that that's where people feel hope and where they see good change happening and where they see 
public officials doing the right thing and and kind of rising above some of that discourse that we hear at the at the broader level so often. Uh, Debbie Welch, um, back to you. Uh, I, I believe the statistic around twenty percent, right? Women make up uh, in Congress, so that's House and Senate. Um, right. And even with the record numbers of women running this year, even if many of them win, uh, you know, it's not going to be fifty percent. Um, yeah, and and I think that's important to talk about because I think with all of the talk about this surge, this tsunami, what the pink wave, what, whatever you want to call what's happening right now, it sets up an expectation that, um, that somehow what this will translate to is gender parity in, in Congress, and that's not what's going to happen. Um, you know, this, is a, this whole process is a, towards this whole journey that we're on towards political parity for women is, in fact, a marathon and not a sprint. And um, this is, a, I think, will be a good year for women. Um, we've looked at the House races and crunched some of the numbers, and these numbers are constantly evolving. But we figure that if every woman right now who's running for the House, who is favored to win, wins, and then if every woman who's running in a toss-up race wins, which is not going to happen, but if, if they all were to win, we would get to about 24 25%. If that happens, then that's a that's a big increase. We go from 19.3% to 24, 25%. That's that's larger than we've seen in a long time. Um, but but again, it is not 50 50 or 51% women. Um, so I think it's always important to keep in mind that this is a long-term endeavor. Um, and also to look at the positive stories that come out beyond just the numbers, right? So the things that we were talking about earlier in terms of women of color and all of the firsts that we're likely to see or that we might see, um, including the first two Muslim-American women um, elected to Congress, which I did not mention before, you know, and all of the other firsts that we're likely to see, some structural changes that I think we've seen as a result of this election. So a woman who is running for Congress in Long Island in New York petitioned the FEC to ask that she be allowed to use campaign funds for campaign-related child care costs, and that was approved. That has the potential to be a game-changer for women um, who might not, you know, be able to run for office because they simply can't, you know, do the child care um, costs. And this, this can change that, and that's been trickling down to the states now. Um, we've seen women who are running for office around the country um, who are running for state offices, and they've been petitioning their agencies in their states that regulate campaign finance. And about seven states have gone ahead and followed the, um, what the FEC has done, and I think more will do so in the future. Um, I think women are running differently this time than they have in the past, which I think is a, a good thing. I think they're, they have a, a wider path to navigate. I think in the past, women have had to not talk about a lot of things in their life, including the fact that they have young children for fear that, you know, the voters are going to say, well, if you get elected or who's going to take care of your children, which nobody ever asks men with young children when they're running for office. So 
that kind of thing, being able to be free or being able to talk about who you are and all of your experiences, your Me Too experiences, your your experiences as a as a young person with student loan debt or somebody who grew up in a household with an opioid addiction. You know, all of these stories that really make women um, much more three-dimensional and accessible to voters. And then finally, I think the whole path to office has been a bit different this time. We've always seen in our research that when women um, make that decision to run the very first time, they do it because they were recruited. And um, when we ask men who are in elective office the same question about when you first ran, were you recruited or was it your own idea? We much more huge gender gap there. Men much more likely to basically say, you know, they woke up one morning, looked in the mirror, and said, "I'd be a great state legislator," and they just do it. Um, I think this time around, and I'm not sure if it was Aaron or if it was Pat who might have said this earlier. These women were not invited to run. Uh, many of them, I think, just did it on their own because they were upset with the way things were going in this country, and they weren't waiting around for an invitation. And if that holds, if that if that is a paradigm shift, then this could be a game changer for all of us moving forward. Uh, if we're not if we're not only thinking about women running when they're recruited, because we know that the parties don't recruit, and this is on both sides, they don't recruit women um, at the same rate that they recruit men. So this could be a game changer. Erin Jemison, I want to follow up with you on that. Are you seeing women in Utah, uh, you know, just coming in saying, I want to run, or uh, or is it more recruiting? I, I totally concur with everything Debbie just said. I mean, I think um, we're definitely seeing more people stepping up and saying, um, I'm not going to wait to be invited. I'm just going to do this. And, and and I think it's hard to know the impact of organizations like ours and Pat's. You know, we've been around since 2011, and, and there is kind of a snowball effect in terms of women feeling more encouraged and, and not needing to, to wait to be invited by the mainstream party. Um, and I just wanted to follow up uh, on Debbie's earlier comment about the fact that that even if every single woman wins, which she won't, we will not be anywhere near parity. Uh, Representative Rebecca chavez Haug here in Utah uh, speaks really eloquently about this, that she was part of a group of women who decided in the 90s to, to make sure women were running in every office for the legislature, and they saw great success. And, and I'm quoting her here, she says, and then we forgot to build the bench. And we actually saw the highest number of women in the Utah State Legislature more than 15 years ago. We still haven't even hit the highest number that we've ever seen in this state. So I do think it's really important to kind of temper the excitement with the fact that we've actually done better in some ways in the past than we're seeing right now, at least in terms of the state legislature. I think we're breaking records in the state in mayoral offices and city councils, et cetera, which often get forgotten. So it's not to say that those are not seeing highest numbers we've ever seen. But in terms of our state legislature, um, 2002 was our highest level of, of the number of women in, in those seats. And, and we do need to to see this as a marathon and not a sprint. And I'm glad Debbie also brought up the FEC decision because, you know, the other hat that I wear here at the YWCA is policy advocacy. And what we see with women in leadership roles in the workplace is no different than what we see with campaigning and political leadership. Things like access to child care and um, balancing out some of those family responsibilities between men and women are really key to women being able to step into these positions. We can't ignore the fact that there's really just 
practical barriers and limitations that we still see with women being expected to, for example, handle all of the child care or other kinds of family care. And that makes it difficult to run for office or step into leadership. And those are some of the kind of cultural barriers that we still are tackling here in Utah. And in fact, I think uh, Representative Chavez Hauk and Representative Edwards are retiring. They are retiring. They yeah. both are actually part of Real Midrod and have been for years and are very passionate about this. So I don't expect to see them kind of go away. I think in, in many ways they'll actually step up their advocacy in some of these areas. But yeah, they've both been in for 10 years and they've been really committed to not um, being in those seats forever and to recognizing that other people can bring new perspectives. And I really respect both of them for that. Let's take another break. We'll come back with our last segment here on this topic, uh, women running for office in record numbers this year, and we'll see how they do uh, nationwide and uh, statewide, uh, of course, on Tuesday. Um, and then the question is, what, what happens after that? Is this a lasting trend? We're asking these questions. Uh, this program is part of the UPR original series, Utah Women 2020. We're talking with Aaron Jemison, Director of Public Policy at YWCA Utah, and Debbie Walsh, Director of the Center for American Women in Politics. More following this break. U.S. Interior Department Secretary Ryan Zinke moves ahead with offshore wind. So I certainly want to praise Zinke for the positive effort towards offshore wind but it's really a chop in the ocean compared to the disastrous policies across the board in the Trump administration. I'm Steve Kerwood, Trump administration and wind power, next time on Living on Earth from PRI. This morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. The legendary actor Michael Caine is on the show. I can't really do a good impression of him. Michael Caine. No. He's on to talk about some of his lessons he's learned in his career and what he wants to pass on. Oh, and he'll also talk about how he really feels about all those impressions. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. This afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We have another uh, six or seven minutes left in this discussion um, on women running for office. We're talking with Erin Jemison, Director of Public Policy at YWCA Utah, and Debbie Walsh, Director of Center for American Women in Politics. Uh, Debbie Walsh, um, the, the Kavanaugh hearings were such a watershed moment. Uh, I don't know. A, a, a secondary question I want to ask, I guess, each of you is, are you hearing women who say, well, b- based on the Kavanaugh hearings, I'm going to run next time? Of course, you know, a little too late to file now uh, on this. But, but the, the central question I want to ask is, uh, I think it's uh, indisputable <laughs> that women politicians, women office holders, are judged differently than men. Um, and, and as I watched those, uh, the Kavanaugh hearings and, um, you know, talked to friends, uh, friends were saying, well, boy, if, um, say, Senator Feinstein had, um, you know, had the tone of a Senator Graham, uh, it would have been a different comment, um, you know, yeah. against her than, than Senator Graham. I wonder if that has effect on women who are con- contemplating running for office. Yeah, well, I don't know if it has an effect on the women who are contemplating running, but I do think that it is so noticeable that the behavior that men exhibit, if it were exhibited by women candidates, would just be a non-starter, or if if not a career ender. Um, you know, to imagine a woman um, kind of ranting, uh, 
the way Lindsey Graham did in in that moment, uh, I think uh, would have would have just been. I can't even imagine it being held up as a model. Uh, the way, in some ways, it was seen as he was being so tough and so strong. And, and I think, look, we've seen this. You know, we we used to we think that this has changed and it's not it doesn't exist anymore but we saw it in 2016 when Hillary Clinton was running um for president and people would say to her that she needed to smile more and meanwhile she was running against men like Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump neither of which I consider to be particularly smiley people um talking to her about how she needs to not yell why is she yelling all the time um you know i i it's not about whether you support or not support a candidate. I felt like Bernie Sanders yells at people when he's up there at a rally. I think there's a certain style in rallies, uh, but it was never he was never accused of that. It was never you know you need to change your style. Um, you know when she ran for president back in 2008, Tucker Carlson talked about whenever he hears uh, Hillary Clinton's voice, he has to cross his legs. I mean, there's just this whole notion of women's voices and when they talk, and it's just, you know, people can't, people particularly, I I don't even know if it's just men, but men have this reaction to voices uh, that I think, you know, you could do a whole lot of psychology about their mothers, frankly, uh, and how they hear women's voices and, and women telling them what to do as opposed to talking about policy. Um, so... I think, unfortunately, a lot of these stereotypes still exist. What I was really struck by in the Kavanaugh hearings was that we were so many years, you know, more than two decades past the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas hearings. And while we did have women sitting on the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, they were all on the Democratic side. And that's still in 2018, there was not one woman on the Republican side um, and that powerful and important committee. Uh, and that's and that's the the challenge I think uh, for for this whole question of women's parity in politics, which is that it it cannot happen only on one side of the aisle. Um, women make up about a third of the Democratic caucus in Congress, um, and women make up only ten percent on the Republican side. And as I said earlier, we are likely to lose Republican women's representation in Congress. And you know, we're never going to get to 50% if only one party is doing the heavy lifting on making sure that there's diversity in their caucus. So you really saw that play out in the hearing where the Republicans, frankly, had to bring in a woman, hire a woman, to question um, Dr. Blasey Ford because there simply was no woman, and they were aware of the problem of the optics in that setting. And I think that was the that was a big part of the message that we saw. Uh, Aaron Jebison, uh, uh, your comments on on, the, on these issues? Yeah, I, I, it's a constant conversation here in Utah around the fact that women, it can't just be one side of the aisle. We work r- very, very hard to make sure that every event that we hold and every training is nonpartisan. In fact, we're more likely to have um, Republican women doing our training than Democratic women simply because there are more of them here in Utah. But um, but in general, when you look at the makeup of women in our legislature, it's far more Democrats than Republicans. We, we very much reflect um, uh, that the same issue that we're seeing nationally in terms of uh, more women stepping up and, and running for office 
who claim the Democratic Party. And I think um, some of the women who have been part of Real Men Run since the beginning and some of the really prominent Republican women that we have engaged talk a lot about the frustration that they feel within their own party. We don't have time to go into all of the issues that the that the Utah Republican Party is dealing with generally, regardless of gender, but I think that that um, influences the, the fact that they're really not spending a lot of time and attention in, in recruiting and training women up to run. And so we really tried to take that on and say um, that, that we are not simply for Democrats. When, when we're hosting events around the state, we have one coming up in Logan and, and St. George this fall, we work really hard again to make sure that prominent Republican women in those communities are speaking and are reaching out and encouraging women to attend because it needs to come from both sides of the aisle. And and I, while I think we may be in a particular moment right now when we saw this huge increase in enthusiasm after the 2016 election, it is more one-sided. And that's something that we're really concerned about in Utah. Given that we are such a deeply red state, we need to be encouraging Republican women to run as well. We'll have to leave the conversation here. We're out of time. We thank very much uh, Debbie Walls, Director of Center for American Women in Politics, for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. And thanks, Aaron. It's fun to be on a program with you. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> and uh, Debbie, just wanted to mention, uh, so cawp.rutgers.edu is the place to find uh, Center for American Women in Politics. Some interesting programs there, including Teach a Girl to Lead, so check that out. Um, and uh, Aaron Jemison, Director of Public Policy, YWCA Utah. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, the website there is ywcautah.org. I'll mention uh, Pat Jones, C- uh, CEO of Women's Leadership Institute, has been with us, and that is wliut.com. And you can find out more information about our UPR original series, Utah Women 2020, by going to upr.org. Thanks for listening today. The woman was on the ground and the bull was tossing her in the air and back on the ground. And where were you? I was right on the other side of the fence, but the fence was electric. Why is it that certain people will risk their lives for a stranger? I went ahead and just climbed through the fence. While others won't. My neighbors would not help me. That question this week on Radiolab. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah State University Center for Women and Gender, providing a professional and social climate to enhance opportunities through learning, discovery, and engagement. Information available at cwg.usu.edu. And the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community of everyday philanthropists raising the questions and raising the funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available at www.utahwomensgivingcircle.com. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org. Wow.